Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist Scott Sigler, performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash contagious. Laying Down the Law Room 207 had become the de facto op center for the Glidden-Marinesco installment of Project Tangram. A little extra money and hotel management magically made the bed disappear, replacing it with a wooden table and chairs from the restaurant. Add a smaller table for a row of four briefcases that opened up to be computer-slash-phone stations, and you had an instant office. At the moment, the office contained Dew, Baumgartner, Milner, and Amos. They were handling various cleanup aspects of the McMillan situation. Amos was only there for the free donuts, but that was to be expected. The really sensitive communication still took place in the Margomobile, but there was only so much room in there. Dew wanted to finish debriefing everyone, make sure he hadn't missed anything. He also had to keep tabs on local law enforcement and the media. Local police were almost always a snap. Despite jurisdictional squabbles, Cops were all in the game for pretty much the same reason, and it wasn't to get rich. If you told city cops, county cops, or even state police that there was some shit going down, shit you couldn't actually talk about, but that it was real serious and that it was over, people were safe. Well, 99 times out of 100, they'd let it go. And for that one in 100 liberal prick who wouldn't let something slide, he always had superiors who would play ball, put pressure on the guy to let things lie. Sometimes not even that worked. In those cases, Dew would give a last warning, a final face-to-face chat. He'd tell the guy that his whole life was about to turn into a steaming pile of donkey shit, that his reputation was about to be trashed, and if push came to shove, he'd be facing some trumped-up charge that would end his career in law enforcement. If that didn't work, Dew pitched it to Murray and washed his hands of the whole situation. Murray Longworth made problems go away. Sucked balls for the guy with the burr under his saddle, but every war has collateral damage. This time, however, Dew wasn't having any problems. Reports of domestic terrorists, army troops, gunfire, and a ground-shaking bomb in Marinesco gobbled up attention. Not that people weren't interested in the sad story of Thad McMillan Sr. going nuts and killing his wife, his daughter, and his little boy. A tragedy. That's what it was. A shame he was running a meth lab in that house. A real shame but it explained the sightings of men in hazmat suits carrying guns, and it explained the two big semi-trucks parked in the McMillan's driveway. It also explained the absence of Tad Jr. and the baby. Witness protection plan. Just for a short time as the feds in town worked through the meth lab case. The boys were safe, although no one could say when or if they'd be back in town. Seems their grandmother, on the wife's side, lived in Washington State, and the boys were eventually going to live with her. The local media bought the story hook, line, and sinker. Methed out father murders family would be in area headlines for another few days, sure. Glenn was so small it didn't even have its own newspaper. Soon, it would all die down. This was America. People got killed. Such is life. What time is the game on? So Dew Phillips was in as good a mood as could be expected for a man trying to deal with a bizarre parasitical invasion. He had helped shut down the fourth gate. He had dry clothes. He was warm again. The media and local police were playing ball. 
He had a full belly, and room service kept bringing pots of coffee and boxes of donuts from Bob's breakfast shack. Everything was going great guns, right up to the moment when the door opened and Perry Dossie stepped inside. Four heads turned to stare at him. Milner's hand went to the grip of his pistol and stayed there. Baumgartner's hands locked down in the back of a wooden chair. Amos backed up against a wall, a chocolate donut with nuts still hanging in his mouth. Do, I need to talk to you, Perry said. Right now. So talk. Get these faggots out of here, Perry said. I'd be happy to vacate the premises, Amos said. If you'd be so kind as to remove your substantial bulk from the doorway, I'll be gone forthwith. Perry stepped aside. Amos shot out of the room like a world-class sprinter coming off the blocks. Kid, Dew said, if you got something to say, just say it. These guys are part of the team. They're fucking peons, Perry said. Don't make me beat their asses again, old man. Dew Phillips nodded. Yes, that was just about enough of this shit. It most certainly was. Milner, Baumgartner, Dew said. Take a walk. Baumgartner seemed uncertain and looked at Dew. Milner kept staring at Perry and kept his hand on the gun. He wasn't taking his eyes off the big man even for a second. Sir, Baumgartner said, I think we should stay here. His metal nose brace glinted in the hotel room's light. Between the brace and the mustache, he couldn't possibly look any dumber. I said, take a walk. Sir, Baum said. You, uh, being alone with Dossie, maybe it's not. Take a motherfucking walk, boys, Dew said. Get out. I want to have a private discussion with Citizen Dossie. Baumgartner let go of the chair. He walked out, patting Milner on the back as he did. Milner managed to follow Baum out the door without taking his eyes off Dossie and without taking his hand off the gun. Perry shut the door. Listen, Dew, something's up. We'll get to that in a second, Dew said. First, I've got a pesky little agenda item that we need to address. Dew, you don't understand. Is there a new gate? Perry thought for a second, then shook his head. Are you hearing new voices? Perry thought again. Kinda, yeah. Voices, but they aren't saying any words. No words, Dew said. So you're sure? They're not talking about a gate then? Perry nodded. Good, Deuce said. Then we'll just table the discussion for a few minutes and address my topic of conversation. But do. I shut your fucking mouth, you little shithead. Perry stared for a second, then smiled. Oh, I see, he said. Are we going to have a lecture about my behavior? That's right, Deuce said. I don't give a fuck how Looney Tunes you are, Dossie. I'm sick of your shit. You're going to start playing ball. You got me? Perry leaned forward and put his hands on the wooden table. It was the only thing that stood between the two men. I call you when I need you, Perry said. I can't roll out a bunch of army assholes with guns and helicopters. You can. Other than that, your services aren't required. So just keep being a good little bitch and go where I tell you to go. Dew felt his temper slip into the bad place. Somewhere in the back of his head, 
He wondered if he'd come out of this alive. Say, Perry said, I didn't see a new Mustang parked in front of my room. What's the holdup? You're just a little bastard trapped in a big boy's body, Dew said. There's not a fucking thing you can do about it. Boo-hoo-hoo, Dew said. So you had a rough time, and now the world owes you a lollipop? You're goddamn right the world owes me a lollipop. At least my government does. Where the fuck was my government when I was going through hell, huh? Where the fuck were you when those things were eating me up from the inside? You survived, Dew said. I'm the only one who survived, Perry said. Because I fought. Because I've got discipline. You've got to have discipline. Dew laughed. You want discipline? I'd like to give you some discipline. Perry smiled. You want to shoot me? Shoot me. It's the only way you can put me down. You ain't jack shit without that gun, old man. Dew had him. A fight was a foregone conclusion at this point. He just had to keep pushing buttons, get Dossie out of control, put him in a rage. You mean this gun? Dew pulled his old forty-five from his shoulder holster. He ejected the magazine, cocked back the slide, and held up the gun to show there was no bullet in the chamber. He set the gun between them on the table. He held up the magazine with his right hand and used his thumb to flick out the first bullet. Then the second. He stared straight into Perry's eyes as he emptied all seven rounds. He held the final bullet, then tossed the magazine away and bounced the bullet up and down in his palm. So now I don't have a gun, Dew said. What do you have to say now, boy? Right, Perry said. Like that's the only piece you've got. Dew gave an exaggerated nod. Kid was smarter than he looked. Dew pulled up his right pant leg and drew his Taurus Model 85 38 revolver from his ankle holster. He emptied the five-round cylinder and dropped the gun on the floor. From his left leg, he took a steel telescoping baton and tossed it across the room into a wastebasket. As soon as he did, he wished he'd kept it. A flick of the wrist would expand the baton from 6 inches to 16 inches. Instant steel billy club. Cat was out of the bag, though. He couldn't exactly go back and get it. Dew then reached to the small of his back and extracted his K-bar from its horizontal sheath. Finally, he slid his hand into his crotch and removed a black switchblade. The switchblade and the K-bar followed the baton into the wastebasket. What the fuck, old man? You going to war or something? Every day, kid. Every day. Now, unless you're going to give me a body cavity search for the frag grenade I carry up my poop chute, you're going to have to take my word for it that I'm disarmed. So are we going to do this, or are you just going to sit there wanking your crank? Are you serious, old man? Look at you. Gut hanging out. I see you sometimes limping and shit. I hit you half as hard as I can. I'll probably kill you. I'm not your little butt buddy, Bill, Dew said quietly. Perry's eyes widened, a combination of rage and shame. You're a big man, Dossie, Dew said. Killing someone who weighed all the buck fifty soaking wet. Don't you talk about him, Dossie said in a quiet voice that sent goosebumps up Dew's back.
Deuce smiled his best asshole smile. What's the matter, pussy? You don't want to take a swing at me? Maybe I can find a midget around here somewhere. Maybe a baby, or a fat woman, or an 80-year-old grandmother. But that won't work, because those people wouldn't be your friends. They wouldn't be your best friend. Someone who trusted you, who tried to help you. Dossie's hands curled up into cinder block-sized fists. It wasn't my fault, he said in that same quiet voice. I wasn't in control. Sure you weren't, Dew said. It's called accountability, boy. If you actually had any discipline, your little faggot friend would still be alive. Perry reached down with his left hand across his body and grabbed the right corner of the table. He lifted and threw in one motion, effortlessly flipping the table to the left. It smashed into the wall, legs breaking on impact. The empty 45 bounced across the carpet. Dew waited. A snarling Perry Dossie raised his right fist. Huge muscles rippling, he stepped forward to throw a haymaker. And just when Perry took that step, Dew flicked the bullet at Perry's face. The bullet bounced off Perry's forehead. He blinked and flinched, an automatic reaction caused by something flying at his face. He turned his head just a little bit, his fist hung in the air, and he took an instinctive shuffle step to maintain his balance as momentum pulled him forward. Dew opened his right hand, making the space between his thumb and his pointer finger as wide as possible. He stepped into the oncoming monster, snapping forward with his horizontal, open hand. The crook of his thumb smashed into Dossie's throat. Dew held back a little, any harder, and he would have broken Dossie's windpipe, making him suffocate to death. He wanted to hurt the guy, not kill him. Not yet, anyway. Dossie's hand shot to his neck, and his eyes scrunched tightly shut. He made a single noise, a part cough, part gag. Then Dew Phillips thumbed him in the left eye. Perry flinched away again, turning his head to the left to protect the eye, left hand coming up to cover it, right hand staying clutched at his throat. He couldn't breathe. He couldn't see. Dew stepped forward to kick Dossie in the knee, but the big man flailed his fist in a wild arc that caught Dew's right shoulder. The force spun Dew all the way around, and he fell hard, knocking over the table full of open briefcases. Dew felt the sting of a cut on his right temple, and only a second later, a bit of blood came trickling down. Dew had been in hundreds of fights, and he'd never been hit that hard. He scrambled to his feet. He tried to move his right arm, but couldn't. It was numb, unresponsive. Dossie was still coughing, still trying to draw a breath, still keeping his watering left eye turned away, still swinging wildly and blindly back and forth with his right hand. Dew skirted the wall to the broken table. With his left hand, he picked up a table leg by the thinner end. The leg's thick top made it look like a polished wooden mace. Dew stepped forward and swung it low. The thick wood slammed into Dossie's right knee. Dossie cried out, his throat capable of producing only a hoarse whisper. He dropped, left knee and right hand holding his weight. You want discipline? Dew said, I'll give you discipline. Dew swung the table leg in a big arc and brought it down on Perry's head. The skin split open instantly, blood spilling out of a two-inch-long gash that stained his blonde hair. Despite the cut, Dossie barely flinched. His right lid fluttered open a bit, 
but his left stayed pinched shut. From his half-crouch, he lunged forward, both hands reaching out. Dew Phillips calmly scooted backward and jabbed the table leg into Perry's mouth, splitting his lip on impact. Perry fell flat on his face, then put his hands down and tried to rise. You're going to play ball, Dew said. He brought the table leg around in another vicious arc, the club end whistling through the air before it landed on Dossie's back with a meaty thud. Dossie let out another choking hiss and fell on his face again. You're going to do it because it's the right thing to do. Dew whipped the table leg in a low swing that hit Perry's right side, crunching into the younger man's ribs. Perry rolled to his left, curling up into a near-fetal ball. He still couldn't see, squinting eyes betraying his blindness. Blood covered his head, poured from his mouth. His knees curled up to his chest, and his hands stuck out in front of him, trying to ward off the attack. Dew swung again, as hard as he could this time. The club had hit Dossie's right thigh. Dossie managed to push a deep scream out through his choking throat. I don't want any more shit out of you, Dew said. He swung the leg and hit the thigh again, knowing that it would hurt far worse the second time. Are you going to stop being such a prick? Stop, Perry shouted. Please! You begging for your life, Dossie, like your friend Bill did, like those triangle hosts did? I was helping them! His voice sounded like he gargled broken glass. Dude jabbed the leg straight forward, hitting Dossie in the forehead. The wood-on-wood sound accompanied another cut, this one longer than the first, and bleeding even worse. Helping them, you psycho fuck. Maybe I should just beat you to death right here. No. Still on his side, knees up to his chest, Perry waved his hands blindly. Do raised the table leg for another shot to Dossie's ribs. He wanted to make this boy hurt. Dossie's voice was a half scream, half cry. Don't hit me anymore, daddy, please. Do stared for a few seconds. The table leg suspended in the air. Please, Daddy, Dossie stammered. No more. Dew lowered the table leg to his side, then dropped it on the floor. He still couldn't move his right arm. The bloody, giant-sized man lay crying on the floor, big body shaking with sobs. I'll get someone in here to clean you up, Dew said. Then go back to your room. I'll come talk to you there. We've got work to do. Dew walked out of the room. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. In a time when the world outside is unsafe, it's vital for Pura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.
remote island in frigid Lake Superior. A fabricated creature birthed from the mind of a disturbed genius stalks the very people who created it. Ancestor by number one New York Times bestselling author Scott Sigler is a classic tale of science gone horribly wrong. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Bitches get stitches. Clarence leaned his head into the communications trailer. Margaret smiled at him. She couldn't help it. She had thought him handsome the first moment she saw him. Now, after three months on this assignment and more than a few nights in his bed, she found him gorgeous. She was falling for him. No, she had already fallen for him. She didn't know if it would be a temporary romance, if when this insanity ended, they simply would go their separate ways. Maybe their attraction was just an outlet, a way to deal with the death that surrounded them on a daily basis. Maybe he was with her because she was the only woman on this project. That thought had crossed her mind more than a few times. She was older, 20 pounds overweight, and while she still got plenty of attention from men, it wasn't as much as she used to get. Was she already in love with him? She pushed the thoughts away. If she let it go that far and he didn't love her in return. Doc, Clarence said. Do says you need to go to the office. I'm a little busy, she said. Tell him if he wants to see me, he can come to the trailer. Then I'll get rid of him, and you can give me a nice shoulder rub. Clarence shook his head. Uh, no can do, Doc. You need to get to the office and bring a first aid kit. Seems Dew and Perry had it out. Oh, no, do we need an ambulance? You're going to have to see this for yourself, he said. Don't worry, I'll go with you. Margaret looked through the comm room's cabinets. There was a first aid kit in here somewhere. She found it, grabbed the white plastic box by its built-in handle, and ran out of the trailer toward room 207. In a way, Clarence had made her question her life choices. Even as she rode a rocket train of career success and quite literally stood in the path of a potential global catastrophe. She was the man, for lack of a better term, something she always longed to be, but thanks to her feelings for him, it was starting to ring empty. When this was over, if they separated, what did she have to look forward to? Her sparse apartment in Cincinnati? A place she really used only for sleep because she worked all the time? You don't need to be afraid, he said as they reached the room. I'll be right here with you. He opened the door for her. Afraid? Why would I be afraid of Doofit? Her voice broke off when she saw Perry Dossie curled up in a fetal position, bleeding like a stuck pig. Like I told you, Clarence said. I'll be right here. She couldn't believe it. Do Phillips had beat up Perry Dossie? Beat up wasn't really the term for it. Thrashed him to within an inch of his life. Yeah, that was more accurate. Clarence, leave us alone. His head whipped around, looking from Perry to her. Are you crazy? He's down, he's not dead. I know. He could snap at any second, Margot, Clarence said. I'm staying right here. She took his hand and led him out of the room then pulled his head down so she could whisper in his ear. Honey, I know you want to protect me, but he's not going to hurt me. He is a killer, Margaret, Clarence whispered back. You're going to have to trust my judgment, she said. I've taken care of him for five weeks, and I'm telling you he's not going to hurt me. Fine, then I'll stay to watch and see how wrong I am. He just got the crap kicked out of him, Margaret said. I'm not a guy, but I think that makes you guys feel a little ashamed, am I right? Clarence stared at her then nodded. So maybe having a woman in there instead of another man won't be as bad, 
because he won't think I'll be wondering if I can beat him up too. Well, that's not exactly how I'd think of it, he said. But yeah, I'd be embarrassed if there was another guy watching me get stitched up. A non-doctor guy, of course. Doctors aren't embarrassing in a situation like this. Guy logic? Guy logic, he said. Listen, can't we at least get Amos to take care of him? She smiled at him. If you can talk Amos Braun into being in a room alone with Perry Dossie, I'll give you 20 bucks. I'm not taking that bet. Clarence, I'm a professional. I love the fact that you want to protect me, but this conversation is over, okay? Stand out here if you're worried. If he tries anything, I'll scream for help. That only works if you can make a noise before he breaks your neck. She sighed, then slapped him once in the chest and walked into room 207. She shut the door behind her. Perry, it's Margaret. He opened his right eye. His left eye was swollen shut. Hey, he said. I'm going to fix you up, okay? Just leave me be. No can do. I'm a doctor. You're bleeding. That's the math. Perry looked at her with his one good eye, then slowly sat up. He scooted until he rested his back against the wall. Fine, he said. Just till you stop the bleeding. She knelt and opened the first aid kit. She pressed gauze bandages against the cut on top of his head. Hold that there, please. Perry did. She put another one on the forehead cut. Blood instantly soaked it. Okay, Perry, tell me what hurts. My ego. I just got my ass kicked by the poster boy for the AARP. Maybe you're lucky, Margaret said. Well, buy me a fucking lotto ticket. How do you figure I'm lucky? Dude's told me a couple of stories over the past three months. He's killed a lot of people, Perry. I know you're big and strong and athletic. You know how to fight. Do Phillips knows how to kill or be killed. Ha, Perry said. He didn't do either. Does that mean I won? Margaret laughed. See, you're cracking jokes. You can't be hurt that bad. Guess again. She tossed the bloody gauze aside, then poured some peroxide on the cut. Does that hurt? She asked. Compared to getting hit with a table leg, might as well be a sensual massage. Good. Then just think of this part as your happy ending. She proceeded to stitch up his cuts. Six stitches on the forehead, five on the top of the head, and three more on his lip. How bad is the eye? Perry said. Is it ruined? She pulled open his upper and lower eyelids and flicked a pen light at the pupil. The eye was already filled with blood, but the pupil contracted with each flash. You're going to have one hell of a shiner, but I think you'll be okay. She made him take off his shirt. Her eyes lingered on the gnarled, fist-sized scar in his right collarbone, then inadvertently flicked to the similar one on his left forearm. She'd treated him for weeks and knew of his other horrible scars, his left thigh, the center of his back, his right gluteus, along with a smaller one on his left shin. Margaret checked his ribs and found they weren't broken. He refused to remove his pants, so she had to take his word for it that the thigh was okay. She finished by checking his knee, sliding up the pant leg, and using her fingertips to probe the area. It was swollen. She didn't feel anything broken, so she dug her fingers in a little deeper to check for ligament damage. Does it hurt when I do this? Yes, Perry said. Describe the pain. Is goddamn near excruciating a standard medical term? She stopped. If I was hurting you that bad, why didn't you say something? He shrugged. Me and Payne go way back. Well, you and your old buddy Payne are going to be spending some quality time together while you heal up from this. 
Can you make it back to your room? Perry struggled to his feet. Margaret tried to assist, but he was so heavy she felt like a little girl pretending to help rather than making any actual difference. She found a bottle of ibuprofen in the first aid kit. Take four of these and just go to sleep, okay? I'll come and check on you later. He took the bottle and hobbled to the door. He opened the door, then turned back. Tell Do I need to see him, Perry said. Tell him it's important and that, that I won't give him any more trouble. Can it wait until tomorrow morning? I want you asleep. Perry thought for a second, then nodded. He held up the bottle, gave it a single shake as kind of a salute, then limped toward his room. She did want him to sleep, but she also didn't want to risk a second round of fighting. Perry acted different, defeated. But Dew probably hadn't calmed down yet, and any number of insignificant words might set the two men off again. The only reason Perry Dossie was still alive was that Dew Phillips wanted him to be. Margaret needed to make sure that Dew didn't change his mind. That can't be good. As the Jewell family slept, the changes began. The new seed strain behaved much like the one that had infected Perry Dossie. At first, anyway. Demodex folliculorum, tiny mites that live on every human being on the planet, found the seeds. Since the seeds looked and smelled like the pieces of dead skin that made up the Demodex's only food, the mites ate them. Protein-digesting enzymes in the microbes' arachnid stomachs hammered away at the seed coats, breaking them down, allowing oxygen to penetrate and germination to occur. And also like Perry's infection, this round began in many microscopic piles of bug shit. Each activated seed pushed a filament into the skin, penetrating all the way down to the subcutaneous layers. At the bottom of the filament, receptor cells measured specific chemical levels and density, identifying the perfect spot for second-stage growth. Unlike peristrain and those that came before it, these filaments released one of two chemicals into the bloodstream. Chemical A, if it was a hatchling seed, similar to the ones that infected Peridasi and Martin Brubaker. Chemical B, if it was the new strain. The chemicals filtered through the host's circulatory system. After a short time, the filament measured the levels of both A and B. This produced a simple majority decision. If there was more chemical A, the hatchling seeds continued their growth and the new strain seed shut down. If there was more chemical B, the inverse occurred. As it turned out, Bobby Jewell was the only one with more standard hatchling seeds. Five of his seven infections, in fact, were the same thing that had infected Perry. Betty, Donald, and Chelsea Jewell would have the honor of incubating the new strain. From this point, the two strains followed almost identical growth patterns. Second-stage roots reached out to draw material from the subcutaneous environment. Proteins, oxygen, amino acids, and especially sugars. Both strains harnessed the host's natural biological processes to create new microorganisms. There were the reader balls, cilia-covered, saw-toothed, free-moving things designed to tear open cells and examine the DNA inside, analyzing the host's biological blueprint like a computer reading lines of software code. There were the builders. They created the flexible cellulose framework that in the original strain would become triangles. There were the herders, microorganisms that swam out into the body to find stem cells, cut them free, and dragged them back to that framework 
where the reader balls would slice into them and modify the DNA. The new strain added to this list. It modified stem cells to produce tiny, free-floating strands of a strong, flexible, micro-muscle fiber. These fibers would self-assemble, binding together in specific, collective patterns. While Bobby Jewell's body dealt with the activities of the reader balls, the builders, and the herders, his daughter, brother, and niece would have to deal with the newest microorganism. Chelsea, Donald, and Betty would feel the effects of the crawlers. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.